This is Salt and Spine. There were a few pretty strict parameters that I set out for myself. One of them was really memories only about food. And food to me, in a way, is absolutely commensurate with the notion of home. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Fanny Singer, author of Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories, which is now out in paperback. Now, Fanny is the daughter of legendary chef Alice Waters, who opened Chez Panisse 50 years ago. Fanny is an art critic today and the founder of a clothing and household goods brand called Permanent Collection. She recently spent a decade living in the United Kingdom before returning to her native Bay Area. Now, the book Always Home for Fanny wasn't just a tell-all or a memoir. For her, it was about negotiating an inheritance that her mother passed down to her, this relationship to and appreciation for food. Food was unsurprisingly always central in their home, but Fanny says she didn't learn from her mother as a student, but rather through sort of a process of osmosis. And while the book is, as I said, not a tell-all, it's rather a record of a deep relationship that Fanny sees between what food does for us how it nourishes, forms, and connects. Fanny discusses how food forms the environments we live in and contributes to the communities we're a part of. The book is, of course, filled with stories and memories from Fanny's upbringing, and it's loaded with vivid descriptions of sensory experiences related to food. Fanny talks about how her mother would burn sage or rosemary when they got home from a trip, and she writes about how she once tried fish cooked in a fig leaf, despite first being opposed to the idea, because her mother was able to describe the flavor and and the scent of the coconutty leaf so well. Fanny says looking back, the book speaks to the rituals that food creates and the way that it can connect us to our homes and to others. We've got a really great conversation with you today. You'll hear from Fanny about her childhood, how she approached writing this book, sometimes starting with a recipe or sometimes with a memory, and what it's been like to navigate her own relationship to cooking. And of course, we've got a featured recipe from Always Home for Substack subscribers, and we get to hear Fanny develop some on-the-spot recipes in our signature culinary game. So let's head now to to our virtual studio, where Fanny Singer joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Fanny. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, Brian. So glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about your book, Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories, which I loved, and some beautiful photos in there, some great recipes. We'll, we'll get to it in a second, but we always like to start by talking a little bit about you and who you are. And, you know, we bring uh, we bring many guests onto this show. And one of the things I often ask guests first is to like talk about your childhood. What role did food play when you were growing up? And I think for folks who know you as, as the daughter of Alice Waters, they may think they know that answer. Um, but I thought it would be fun to start with that question with you since we ask so many people that whose childhoods we know so little about and to hear what your response to that question is. So when someone stops you and says, like, what role did food play in your early life? How do you answer that? Like, is there an easy way other than writing a book about it? <laughs> well, yes, it's, it, it, it is the subject in its entirety of the book. In yeah. a way. But I think there are a couple of things that always surprise people. Like people assume that I cooked with my mom all the time, that I was, mm. you know, her helper and her student. And that wasn't actually really the case. I mean, food was absolutely the center of our home and our family life. And it is the core thing that I identify with 
despite, you know, other pursuits and other academic interests and intellectual interests, I still think of food as the kind of like core of my identity. And that completely comes from having grown up in a family whose, you know, orbit was entirely around food at its center. Became comfortable in the kitchen just by watching my mom, by eating her food, by sort of like in a weird way, secondhand absorption. I mean, my mom sort of calls it osmosis. You know, it was like being around uh-huh. the smells of the kitchen and being asked to occasionally help with like a little task. But I don't remember taking a real interest in recipe building or cooking in a more professional context or manner really until I got to college and realized like I kind of needed to really hone my chops in order to make the kind of food that I wanted to eat, you know, because suddenly I was like not in the home where it was just being purveyed to me without a second thought, you know, it's just, my mom was always making beautiful things or eating at Chez Panisse. It's like, I had to figure it out. I remember calling the chefs at Chez Panisse all the time on the kitchen line and being like, wait, what temperature do you roast a chicken at? You know, and these sort of, these lessons you might've assumed I would have very early on absorbed from my mom. But that's still to say that food was was incredibly important. But, you know, there was an article when I was a little baby and my mom has the clipping somewhere, you know, from the Washington Post that was called Bringing Up Baby on Grapes and Quail. And that's from before I really was eating solid foods, I was teething on quail legs on the bones. So needless to say, you know, there was a certain focus and attention on the quality of food that I was um, given from a very young age. Yeah. And I understand you never really, to my knowledge, went through like a picky eater phase that many kids do. I mean, no, not really. My mom was really open-minded about, um, you know, letting me try things and and sort of describe distastes and like aversions. And if I was, if, if I didn't really didn't like something, she usually didn't force it on me, but it was almost always the case, you know, for instance, when she first gave me fish that she'd baked in a, in a fig leaf. And I said, I didn't want to try it. And she said, I think you'll like it. It sort of tastes coconutty. And I remember trying it and I was a little older then, you know, I was probably like six or seven uh-huh. being totally persuaded by it. Um, but there were only a few things I really hated and like persistently hated for a long time, like anchovies. Um, but that was very, oh, interesting. very okay. I now love anchovies, of course. I would put them in basically everything. But at the, when I was, a, even in my right. teenagers, I was absolutely disgusted by them. That's so interesting. I think, you know, your your mother is a celebrity in so many ways, but was there like a moment where you realized she was something more than just your mother, um, that she had this, this special meaning to so many people beyond just, you know, the circle that you were in. Like, I'm always curious if that's a thing that like clicked for you at a certain point or if that was gradual. It was sort of gradual because I mean, her, the level of fame that she has now was not the level of fame she had when I was a kid. And, and so there was, a certain kind of notoriety, but it was more, it was really within the industry. And so the things that I noticed most were like preferential treatment at restaurants and like extra, you know, sure. as, as dishes getting sent out. It wasn't like we, she didn't have the kind of fame because she had never wanted to do a television show or, you know, books full of photos of her. I mean, all of her books are illustrated, which I think is really notable with the ex- very, like the one exception of the green kitchen, which is of a lot of chefs who contributed. So it's, there's only really one or two photos of her in that book. And so she wasn't putting her image out there. And 
which was in a way, I think, really her her faithfulness to the idea that Chez Panisse was run by so many people. There wasn't one person, even though she did, she is the person who's associated with it most iconically. Like it is run by a board of directors and there've always been multiple chefs and the responsibility for what is on the menu and what you taste when you visit is not uniquely my mom. So, and it never really was. And, and I, I don't think she ever felt comfortable being the, like the face really of just Chez Panisse and of that, of what that meant, you know, publicly. As the Edible Schoolyard started to develop, which was about 26 years ago, which is her nonprofit foundation that puts gardens in schools and then teaches kids how to um, grow food and cook it and in the context of their other academic subjects, that's when she started to become more of a kind of public figure because she was really pushing out her image in a way to bolster that organization. So I kind of think of that, I mean, certainly like her... Um, National Endowment for the Humanities Award from Obama was because of the work that she started to do 26 years ago with the Edible Schoolyard, dovetailing with the work and the politics of, of Chez Panisse, but you know, not uniquely the restaurant. So in that later period, I was out of the house mostly, you know, so I uh-huh. did feel like there was some sort of mega celebrity that I was like cohabitating with. And I still don't feel that even though you know, if we travel to some places like Japan, that you will actually get noticed on the street. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious then how the decision came about to write this book. And when you felt like you had to write this book, I've, I've read in some interviews you've done that you said you, you felt like you had to write it almost. You had to kind of put it out there and move past it in order to move on to other, you know, creative endeavors and projects. What was that process like for you? I, I think that's right. I think since those interviews, which were when the book came out, which is actually close to two years ago, which is crazy. So it's coming out in paperback yeah. this month. Was if, There's been a little bit of a revision to that. I saw it really as a catharsis initially. And now I sort of okay. see it also as a reconciliation, like as a catharsis, a, a sort of passage clearing, like I needed to deal with this relationship and with this inheritance in a really in-depth way in order to be like, all right, that's my family. We are, we all know who she is, you know, and now I can do other things. And it sort of, it did that to some extent, but it also allowed me to realize how close and important those things are to me, that they aren't things I want to eschew or distance myself from or create space from necessarily, but also entwine into my life even more profoundly. So I think it allowed me to see that like my sort of false divisions, because, you know, I went, moved to England for 11 years and I studied for a PhD in art history and I, I worked in the art field and not really in the food one at all. And then I took on this, mm-hmm. this kind of cookbook memoir, culinary memoir, which was for a lot of people who knew me professionally in this other art historical vein, that was a real left turn. Like even if they did know who my mom was and sure. at this in this point in my life, I think a couple years on, even from that effort of writing that book, there's an understanding that these these are not like completely separate spheres, and nor do they need to be, that they can kind of really complement one another and work together in my life. So food and the art world and all of these things I see now as interrelated and also really entwined with, you know, politics of food, which I am more and more engaged in. And and how did you land on what the focus of the book would be? I think I read that the working title was originally even just home, right? And then became always home. But this concept of homecoming and, and the much of the book really does take place in 
in the home and like the literal home that you grew up in and and that but also there's a lot of the book that takes place elsewhere traveling abroad there's this wonderful sort of road trip moment so it's not always physically in the home but how did you distill that concept into what this memoir would become there were a few pretty strict perimeters that i set out for myself um One of them was really memories only about food. This wasn't a tell-all memoir that was going to be some kind of expository thing that was going to show everyone who my mom truly was. I didn't want it to feel like it was going to make vulnerable any of its subjects. And, And also, I wanted its intimacy to be somehow circumscribed by the subject that I felt was really the core concern, which is, which is food and how that forms us and how that nurtures us and also shapes our surroundings and our lives and our communities. And food to me in a way is absolutely commensurate with the notion of home. And so there was, there was no real um, division between those for me. So it was like, how do you make yourself feel at home? Well, it's like through usually the senses and it can start with things that are olfactory. Like I talk about how my mom always burns rosemary when we enter a new rental house or Airbnb or when we get home from a long trip, you know, she kind of lights this purgative branch of, of rosemary and trails it around. And then it becomes, you know, what's next? It's getting a chicken and making a stock. And then from that stock, maybe making a little risotto and having friends around. And, you know, this this way of creating a sense of sort of rootedness wherever you are, whether it's in your your home proper, or whether you're traveling or whether you're someplace just for a short time, which is why the the title Always Home was meant to conjure this notion of our capacity for finding that sense of racination, like even if we're tumbling around, you know, as I was for many, many, many years. I mean, when I lived in England, I lived in a different house almost every year for 11 years. And I was constantly in a different town or a different dorm or a different apartment or with different roommates. And that was just kind of the nature of my life from the time I was 18 to pretty much like when I moved back to California in my, you know, early mid thirties. So it was in a way it was like a very abstract sort of manual for how to achieve a sense of, of home, even when you're maybe thousands of miles away from the people that you most associate with it. Yeah, I I love that, and the the rosemary thing reminds me of this wonderful scene too of of understanding how your mother enters a space and has to remove things and rearrange things, and maybe not maybe it's not quite as vulnerable as some people would have you know wanted more gossipy vulnerable stuff, but it is really personal, and like I love hearing that like you know oddly shaped cutting boards have to be thrown into the closet and like <laughs> can't be can't be permitted. <laughs> you have a cutting board that's like in the shape of a pig that's that will go in the closet <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah that will be better. exactly i'm curious because the book is so focused on food memories and there's a lot i think that people can distill by reading this book about how how your views towards food and how you interact with food was shaped by your mother but your mother is also a prolific writer um, and has written a number of cookbooks. And I'm curious, as you set out to write this book, was she a voice in your head? How much did she influence your style? How much did you try to sort of approach this in a, a different way than she might approach her writing projects? Like, What was that like for you since she's sort of wears that identity too? My mom would like probably be the first person to say that I'm the writer in the family. So that was not a burden for me or, or a sort of like, 
mantle I felt I had to shrug off in order to write this. Um, I mean, I thought of her often and always and consulted her because I was sifting through memories and, and looking for the things that would be most salient and descriptive of the relationship. And so she was someone I was in frequent touch with. But in terms of the kind of burden of or the anxiety of influence, to quote my professor from Yale, Harold Bloom, um, <laughs> you know, about this kind of this there was none of that. I mean, I didn't feel at least not in relationship to my mom. I may have had it about some other authors whom I admire, but it was, I didn't feel any difficulty actually finding my own voice in it, but it was also really liberating for me to write this kind of book after writing like pretty academic text. I mean, in, in the art world and, and for my PhD, which was just a very different, much more rigid voice in which I had to be totally accountable to facts and research so that I would never, you know, mislead my reader. And in this, it was like the, the only person who can be misled is me, you know, like everything I write is kind of authentically me. So it just, all I had to do was sit down and kind of actually channel that and, and organize it in a way that made sense. I want to talk a little bit more about your writing too, because one of the things that I think is so interesting in in this book and your memoir is the way you talk about smell. And obviously, we're a show on cookbooks, food books. We talk to a lot of authors, and smell is certainly something that people try to write about. But the way you approach smell as a writer is really interesting, and I. I I've heard some other conversations that you've done where you've talked about, you know, phrases like a fat smell, which is a phrase you use. And I'm curious how you sort of think about smell and how you incorporated that really important quality when it comes to cooking or maybe not quality, really important element of cooking into your writing. I was talking just yesterday to Ruth Rachel and reminded her that when she was interviewing me, a couple of years ago, she was t- like, before we started the interview, which was for the 92nd Street Y event that was made virtual because of the pandemic, she was just sort of chatting mm-hmm. with my mom and we were talking about the differences in how we cook. And she mentioned that her mom cooked by smell, that she knew how much some a dish needed of spice or herbs or pepper, whether it was burning or correct just by smell. And I was like, oh my God, that's the truest expression of how I like cook in a way. Like I had never really thought that you can say that or that that was possible, but actually that's how I cook. It's sort of like sacrilege to say this, but as much as I tell people to taste and like decide whether they like it, whether it needs more acid or I'm not someone, my mom always tastes like constantly as she's cooking. Is the sauce right? Does it need more salt? I don't usually taste something until after I've like almost plated it because I have a crazy tyrannical sense of smell. And it is what I use as, as a barometer for whether something is spicy enough or acid enough, you know, or whether it's brown enough. The smell has been this thing that I think has always been a huge, huge part of how I've digested or metabolized the world around me from when I was tiny. And my dad, my dad is a winemaker and a really knowledgeable, really, really knowledgeable unifile and like longtime vendor of wine. He had a little store when I was little in San Francisco and also developed wine lists for tons of different restaurant clients in the Bay Area. And so on that side, I had this really kind of prodigious nose. And then on my mom's side too, clearly there's, some capacity around palate and and 
and smell. So I feel like I got this weird, but not like a super sensor, like where I can't tolerate anything because it's like too, I can't tolerate too, too many extremes or whatever. It's more just a okay. uh-huh. organ, shall I say, or, or, <laughs> sure. um, and so I, I, I don't know, it's always been something that's been essential to me to figure out how to articulate correctly because I am like thinking through smells when I'm smelling them. So specifically, it's like, I want to figure out a way how to, to verbalize that. You know, when I thought the fat smell of the dough, the pizza dough was something I fought with my editor actually to, to keep in because it is a very abstract idea. But I kept like some of my favorite poets. I read a lot, a lot of poetry. It's one of my favorite things to read. And I have a huge collection of it. And I feel like poets have the fewest constraints when it comes to these types of metaphors. Like they just use them freely. And I kept reminding myself that it's possible in language to stretch it beyond what we expect, you know, and that you can create something in language that's so much more evocative, especially when it comes to the senses, because we have such a limited vocabulary around talking about taste and smell, especially in cookbooks, you know, that there has to be a more expansive way for us to get very, very specific access to those things. Yeah. And if there's anyone that that models that, it's it's Ruth Reichel. I mean, her her prose is so poetic and yeah. She's one of my favorite writers. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Fanny Singer. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, cookbook lover. Are you subscribed to Salt and Spine on Substack? If not, you should be. You'll find our full catalog of podcast episodes featuring more than 100 in-depth interviews with top authors like Nigella Lawson, Jacques Pepin, Samin Nosrat, and Carla Hall. And for just $5 or less per month, you'll also get access to hundreds of exclusive featured recipes from top cookbooks. You'll get early access to our quarterly cookbook club and author dinner parties and so much more. At Salt and Spine, we bring cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. Join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content. Find out more at saltandspine.substack.com. And now back to our conversation with Fanny Singer, author of Always Home. I'm curious how you approached the recipe component of the book. Um, did they, you know, obviously you're pulling together all of these food memories, the the narrative is sort of coalescing. Did the recipes come naturally or did you kind of have to work to figure out which ones to include and where they fit? It's kind of split half and half between like the recipe was definite. And then the story, I knew that there would be a story that led into it and then half kind of stories that absolutely had a recipe or food component to them that then just needed the recipe to be articulated. But the recipes are written really intensely in this very, narrative way and this very loose way because I actually don't very cook for, unsurprisingly don't cook very well from recipes I am constantly like entering fugue states and like mixing the wrong amount of butter into something when I'm trying to bake but I love to look at them for inspiration I love to read through their ingredients and their methods but I'm really bad at actually like doing the instructions and so I didn't really want to put that kind of more rigorous, recipe pedagogy into this book. Like I wanted people to just like intuit their way through or read it and feel inspired. I actually was surprised that so many people made the recipes. I think I thought like, oh, no one's even going to try. Like these are just stories. These are like additional stories with Uh reasons. And then, and my editor was like, no, Fanny, people are going to use this as a like a recipe book. Like this is not just a memoir. 
And then it turned out, of course, he was right. But it took a little bit of like chutzpah, I think, to like get through some of the recipes in a way that like made sense or at least a bit of know-how. But then others, I think you could approach with very little culinary knowledge and make something good just by following at least the confidence that you know what you like as you're sort of reading through what I'm suggesting. Yeah, I mean, the the coming home pasta feels like it's kind of the perfect example of that in terms of that narrative recipe, how that weaves the story and then the recipe together in, in such a unique way. Was that has that been sort of a, a very popular recipe? Totally. The, if any recipe went yeah. like viral from the book, it was that. I mean, especially <laughs> because the book came yeah. out right at the beginning of the pandemic. And there was like a legitimate shortage of a lot of ingredients, but there was definitely enough to make coming home pasta, which is essentially like a kind of white puttanesca. You know, it's like whatever you have around, mm-hmm. you can put in kind of, but like all you really need is garlic maybe some chili flakes, maybe some capers, maybe some herbs, you know, maybe some anchovies and that those and with some good olive oil and maybe a little cheese make a delicious pasta. So lots of people were riffing yeah. on it. I got a lot of people doing sardine versions, which I was like, okay, you know, like I, which I had not. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Going for it. Yeah. Yes. But sardines. All right. <laughs> yeah. Tinned fish, delicious in all forms. Obviously, you mentioned that you were a little bit surprised, perhaps, that people were cooking so much from the book. But what do you hope that people take away from from this memoir? I didn't think of it in terms of like lessons or takeaways or anything like that in a concrete way. But I do think uh-huh. one of the most now looking back sort of obvious themes of the book is that food is a way to communicate to people emotionally, that it's not just a way of nourishing people, which it is, of course, or an efficient sort of thing that we have to do because we need to fuel up, you know, between work or before bed or get something in the kids. It was like food was a ritual in our house. And And a ritual that my mom always used to say, food got turned into this this idea of drudgery, that cooking food became, you know, a pain in the ass and something that we had to do that was work. Cooking food is actually, can be anyway, a huge pleasure. And obviously there are many, there are many pressures and, you know, uh, other constraints in our modern world. So it's not to, it's not to be completely romantic about the idea, but when you have time and you can invest a certain amount of effort and, and time in making something beautiful for someone that you love, it communicates that implicitly. It communicates a kind of caretaking and a kind of, and a kind of love, I think, through, through the food alone. And so, you know, I say like, you know, people always ask actually about my teenage years, like, were you rebellious? Like, was there ever like a period mm-hmm. when you eat what your mom made or you like didn't get along and you know the the book doesn't really you know deal with any fractious teenage years and it wasn't that it was utterly uh-huh. sailing in my teenage years but there was something about like the consistency of my mom making my lunch every day I mean until I was 18 I mean until I went to college you yeah. know she made every day through high school and I had dinner with her every night and that was a way in which we communicated without language necessarily. Like I didn't always want to talk to her at dinner, you know, or I'd be coming home from soccer practice and be tired. We still had this moment that was, you know, outside of language in which I totally understood everything that I needed to about 
how much she loved me in a way that I think was so powerful and which I think we, you know, to some extent don't really engage in anymore necessarily with the people that we love or our families because of too little time or pressures of work or whatever it is. So I hope that people sort of slow down or at least take some time in every week to make that kind of effort because of how, what a potent way of communicating it is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask about your influences. We mentioned Ruth Rachel. Are there other authors or even specific books that have been important to you either in your life or as, as references as, as you were writing your book? Well, there are two people, the only two people who get devoted chapters in my book who are not my mom are Nilifer Ichaporia uh-huh. King and David Tanis. And they are the two people yeah. I would say who had the most profound effect on my palate um, and my culinary sensibility. And so they both get, there's these sort of hagiographic portrayals of them in these chapters because they just, they're people I love very, very much, but they also did really affect me both at their tables, but also through their beautiful books. Um, Nilifer wrote this wonderful book called My Bombay Kitchen, which details kind of a combination of her childhood memories of growing up in Bombay as a Parsi, which is a really distinct um, Zoroastrian sect within India. So it's, it's ethnically distinct from other parts of India. And so the food is really particular because it comes from Persia or formerly Persia. Uh-huh. And so there's her food was always like mind blowing to me, you know, the way that she mixed flavors and used spices. And I don't think I ever had the same thing twice at her house. Um, and then David yeah. Tannis, of course, I love all of his books, but the way that he talks about food, especially in platter of figs, you know, the tone that he set with that first of his cookbooks, the, the sort of profound knowledge, but also ease or easefulness in cooking and, the, just the, how just casually he'll put something together that tastes like such a sparkling bright thing, you know, and I, he cooked at Shapenies for years and they were my favorite years of eating at the restaurant. And now he's at this new restaurant that my mom opened in LA called Lulu. So it's so exciting to have him back at the helm. And because I live in LA, it feels like heaven sent that he's there. So those are two books that yeah. I really, I mean, are, to people whose books are very important to me. Um, but I love yeah. writers, you know, like Ruth and, and Tamar, you know, Adler, whose books are just narrative sure. and evocative and so, so intelligently written and still also wonderful cookbooks. You know, I, I love, I really love reading really good writing about food. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we always end with little games. So we have these cards that we use. We've got four little decks here. And I thought we'd play a little game. It's sort of like Chopped. If you've watched the TV show Chopped, you'll have a little basket of ingredients to work with and tell us what you might make. And the setting could really be anything. I think there's so many wonderful memories in in your book, Always Home, that it could be literally in your home that you're you're creating this meal. It could be on the road. the possibilities are, are open here. So we have protein options, vegetable options, flavor options, which are spices, herbs, and the secret ingredient deck, which can be a little bit of a wild card. So I'll draw one of each and then tell us how that might become a, a meal that you would make. I'll How's do that sound? <laughs> okay. 
Uh, all right. So the protein we're working with is lamb. Lamb. Our vegetable is green beans. Mm. The flavor we have is chives. Okay. And our secret ingredient is fish sauce. Ooh. You sort of slightly chose things that I have made before, uh, which is sort of serendipitous. No, but I love making lamb shank um, for Easter and braising shanks and then making a kind of more almost like kind of Thai Vietnamese fish sauce lime um, sort of nok chum style sauce for the lamb. I really actually think that lamb which is so rich is really offset in a nice way with like the little mild funk Uh and then acid of that kind of sauce. So I would make, I would make a a nok chum of sorts and then with lots of chili do I get, I'm going to just add chili. I add chilies to everything. The lamb would be a kind of, you know, it would make a sort of uh-huh. mirepoix lamb in the oven and then serve it with this sauce and tons and tons of herbs that you have not given me to use, but I will use basil and mint. And then the green beans, I would just like either flash saute <laughs> or, or even steam and just sprinkle some ch- some chopped chives on those and serve with a little bit of a little olive oil or Probably not better. I'm always an olive, always an olive oil girl. I hope that <laughs> I didn't go too rogue on that. <laughs> this no, no, that was great. Um, should we do one more to close it out? We'll see. We'll see if um, I. Yeah, I feel like you got you got the easy one. You're like I've done all of this. Um, okay, the protein we have mm. is duck. Our flavor is mint. Our vegetable sweet potatoes. Okay. And the secret ingredient is grape jelly, duck, mint, grape jelly, and sweet potatoes. I actually feel like grape jelly would not go horribly on duck. Like a, like maybe one of my favorite recipes of David Tannis's is this duck breast roast where you take two breasts and you season them with some various aromatics and salt and juniper and bay. And then you, and then you use twine to bind them into like little, they look like a little sort of Sunday roast. And then you, you roast that in, in the oven. And it's such an easy way to make this like beautiful, almost like perfect, slightly rare uh-huh. duck. So I might make that and then glaze it at the end in grape jelly, which I think would be kind of delicious. Um, and then I've never put mint on sweet potatoes, sure. but yeah. what about like a sweet potato... Um, sort of a thinly sliced sweet potato gratin that just has like mint in the chiffon, sort of like chiffonade of mint in the cream that you layer the sweet potatoes with, sort of like minty potatoes. One thing I do love to do is when I'm boiling new potatoes, and this was something I learned from um, a woman who's a wonderful cook in Kent in England. We were eating at um, her house I was with my mom and so we were visiting and actually staying in Sissinghurst Castle, which is this incredible, incredible um, home and castle that belonged to um, Vita Sackville West. And her grandson still was living at the time in like the carriage house part of it or like the front part of the house. Uh-huh. And we were visiting with them and his wife made these unbelievably beautiful potatoes that she dug up from her garden. And at the last minute in the boiling salted water, she'd thrown in like an entire bunch of mint, just all of the, not the stems, but all the leaves. And so when she took the potatoes out, 
green leaves are like brilliantly green and clinging to all the potatoes. And it was so delicious. Uh-huh. And the water was like a kind of tisane, you know, it had make, made a kind of mint brew. So the potatoes had this like ethereal mint flavor. And it's something that I've always done since meeting them. Um, so maybe, you know, sweet potatoes or <laughs> maybe mint would work in that. Yeah, that that sounds amazing. Um, and yeah, I think it could work with sweet potatoes. It's worth a shot. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Fanny, for joining us. So nice to see you, Brian. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We've got a great season for you this year. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Barney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine's studio home is the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.